1: Hi and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott. Each week I listen to some of the best audio storytelling from around the world and share the best of the best with you. And coming up today, children's clothing. Who designs it? What are they thinking? And how can sequins stop a clothing company from getting sued? Then Meet, an award-winning podcast about how our bodies can shape our lives, starting with the hosts. Yes, I'm fat. And I know that I'm fat.
2: I know because every day something or someone reminds me I'm fat.
1: Inside a major steroid scandal that rocked world sport. He's almost done when,
3: whoa, an order for a laboratory, blood and urine tests, the kind used to detect steroids. He's found them before. Nowitzki's got a pile of these forms, but the one he's holding in his hand tonight is different. The name on it?
1: Barry Bonds. Finally, Branch Out goes rustling through the undergrowth at the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney, showing off the science and the stories behind some of its most interesting plants. And if you've heard anything good recently, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. On Twitter, we're at rnzpodcasthour, and I'll be featuring lots of your recommendations on future shows. It's not always easy finding children clothes they like to wear. Could one of the problems be that all those gaudy designs and garish colours and patterns are usually the work of an adult? That's the kind of question that Articles of Interest thinks about. It's a mini-series from the popular design podcast 99% Invisible that tells stories about fashion and the clothes we wear. I listened to a good one recently talking about why women's clothing doesn't have more pockets. Well, back to kids' clothing and its limitations. What would it be like to be an adult who has to wear it? Well, Joe Rosenberg's four foot eight inches tall, that's 142 centimetres. And early on, he speaks to his friend, colleague and host, Avery Truffleman, about his experiences shopping in the children's clothing aisle. Articles of Interest. A show about what we wear. And so maybe the idea is about clothes. You
4: can attach our ideas about class. An idea of home to a piece of cloth.
5: These are best for last.
4: <laughs> Any fool can wear clothes, but if you ain't got the attitude and style to carry it off,
6: man, you're just a clothes horse.
7: Clothes are records of the bodies we've lived in. Think of an old sweater you used to have that's just not your style anymore. Or jeans that just aren't your size anymore. We are like snakes who shed our skins and grow new ones as we age. And it all starts in the kids' department. It's not looking good. Oh, wow. Joe and I went to J. Crew it's together. He was pretty much ready to give up as soon as we walked in. <laughs> we haven't even dove in yet. I know we haven't. Um... The kids' section was one row. And everything in it was very loud. This shirt glows in the dark. This shirt glows in the dark. This shirt has many uh, tie-dye bicycles on it. Um, Um, This this... shirt has so many stripes that maybe it it almost works. (laughs) (laughs) The color palette of the children's department tends to be really bright and way over-decorated, as Joe and I debriefed in his car.
6: The fundamental thing about shopping
7: as a very short person having to shop for kids' clothes is that your life is just this hellscape of, like, ripped jeans and deliberate patches and fun slogans and crazy zippers and bold colors and prints and the idea that you're going to find just like slim jeans in a subtle hue dark wash you know like no that just doesn't happen it almost makes no sense you'd think that we would all start as young blank canvases dressed in shades of white and gray slowly acquiring more and more colors, more graphics, more signifiers of who we are as we age and solidify into ourselves. Until we finally retire in jeans that we've ripped and distressed and patched ourselves, paired with graphic t-shirts that list all the bands we've heard, and TV shows we've watched, and cities we've visited throughout our lives. But no, all that decoration and phony self-expression is put in a blender with birthday cake and sequins and then put in a hanger on a rack. That's the kids' section. It's bad, it's really bad. And actually, even if I'm just alone, I'm like slightly embarrassed for myself. So how did we get here? Where did this style we call children's clothes come from? Children's clothes haven't always been a thing. And historically, especially in the United States, childhood itself was a luxury.
0: Because you have working children, Children of parents who are not slaves but have to work, and the children who are slaves and have to work and maybe don't have a childhood much really at all.
7: This is Erin Algio. She's the curator at the Lassis Museum of Lace and Textiles in Berkeley.
0: Some children are always clean, and some children are always precious, and some are not. That's class, that's whether someone is slave or free. The children who were not considered clean or precious didn't get children's clothes. I'm sure you've seen pictures of children that are working, and they do look like little adults as they're standing in the cotton mill or boys that go down and work in the mines.
7: Basically, poorer children were given what was around, while upper-class children had the privilege of being deliberately dressed. And although fancy children were also sometimes dressed like little adults, underneath their clothes a lot of them were wearing corsets.
0: If your parents wanted to raise you correctly, they would put you, boys and girls, in corsets.
7: There's this whole idea that children had to be cultivated, like a dog in a harness or a flower on a trellis.
0: Now, the corsets were not as intense as older women wore. But yes, boys and girls, were, it was considered for posture and so forth that you would be in a corset.
7: And although it happened slowly, the demise of the child corset is thanks to philosophers like Jean-Jacques
0: Rousseau our concept of childhood that we have now was really formed in the 18th century. In
7: 1762, Rousseau wrote, Hold childhood in reverence and do not be in any hurry to judge it for good or for ill. Give nature time to work before you take over her business, lest you interfere with her dealings.
0: It made the concept that Those little bodies needed to be free, free and unfettered. Side note, Rousseau himself was a terrible dad. He dropped his children off at an orphanage and
7: abandoned them. But philosophies like his, paired with eventual child labor laws and regulations, really helped shape our idea of what a precious, valuable time
0: childhood is. In the 18th century, clothes just for children come in, and they look different than adult clothes. In these clothes, children are
7: dressed up for the occasion of their youth, this amazing time
0: free from cares, separate from the rest of their lives. They were designed for ease of movement. When we look at them today, we can't believe anyone could move in them. They may have been easier
7: to move in than a corset, but these clothes were still really formal, like embroidered dresses for girls and boxy little suits for boys.
0: But it just looks like a little suit, I guess. Adorable. So. Yeah, no, it is, it is adorable, actually.
7: So children are wearing these adorable mini-me get-ups. It's almost like a parody of adulthood. Stuff meant to look like adult clothes that adults would never actually wear, which is what we see now in the kids' department. And it has everything to do with our evolving concepts of childhood and how much freedom and protection we think children ought to have. Because although their corsets are long gone, children are still bound by legal requirements. What, what is this thing you gave me?
5: <laughs> this is from the NRA.
7: No, not that NRA. The National Retail Association of Australia. My friend Morgan is not Australian. She is a technical designer for a big children's clothing company. She'd rather not say which one. One of the major children's clothing retailers in the United States. Her company has many, many, many rules about what can and cannot be in children's clothes. But those rules are top secret. So Morgan brought me that Australian safety guide because it's kind of similar and it gives you a rough idea.
5: It's a 76 pages long and thorough. And it goes through at the beginning the way you assess risk, which is high to low based on if a kid could die from
7: it. You don't want choking hazards, no sharp edges, and no drawstrings.
5: Globally, there are reports of various serious injuries and deaths occurring when knots, toggles, or cord ends become snagged or caught into moving parts or closing doors. And in order to address that, we can't have a cord that's longer than three inches. And that goes all the way up to 12 years in the United States.
7: Sometimes in the kids' section, you can see drawstrings on hoodies or sweatpants. But those don't actually function. They're just decorative.
5: They so can't actually cinch the body. You can only cinch in between these two inches.
7: It's basically so that kids can look like little adults without running the risks of adult dressing, so the clothing companies don't get in trouble.
5: I mean, you can get sued for sure if you kill kids,
7: you know. They're not doing it just for a sense of morality. These guidelines are the cobbled-together aftermath of a series of disasters. It's just like lawsuit after lawsuit. Every time an item is recalled or a clothing company gets sued for endangering a child, the guidelines get revised or tightened. And one of the biggest legal differences between children and adult clothes is flammability. Flame
5: retardant's a huge one. Everything has to be flame retardant if they're sleeping. If a
7: child is going to sleep in it, the fabric has to be flame retardant and the garment has to fit tight. They are concerned about candles, night lights, fires
5: in house, whatever could happen if their kid is wearing loose fitting clothing and it's hanging loose from you, it's just gonna like have a lot of oxygen. Give you a bunch of third-degree burns anything that could potentially be sleepwear has to be near skin tight and has to be flame resistant so that doesn't happen to kids
7: and this starts to get at our question about why kids clothes look the way they do because note how morgan said anything that could potentially be sleepwear flammability rules don't just apply to clothes labeled as pajamas They could apply to any garment a parent puts their kids to sleep in.
5: Or that a kid decides
7: that they want to sleep in it. So, anything that is comfortable or soft, which means that kids' clothing, if it's not sleepwear, has to go through great pains to prove that it's not sleepwear so that they don't have to meet all those flammability and size requirements. So, let's say you're trying to design kids' clothes that are not for sleeping, they can't have pictures of anything that could be interpreted as sleepy. Like what is
5: pictured on it? Is it sleeping animals? Is it a sleepy scene? Does that make you feel sleepy?
7: If it makes you feel sleepy, it's sleepwear. So no images of the moon, no images of stars, and no clouds. You know, like a cloud thing probably wouldn't work. Your
5: legal department at your company would be like, you can't do that because that makes me feel like sleep. And then
7: certain animals, like owls. Same with other nocturnal creatures like bats. Unless you're designing a Halloween line and you really, really, really want to have a shirt with a bat on it. I don't know if it was on Halloween and it had enough, like, sequins on it or something. Maybe you could get away with it. Sequins are a good way to show a garment is not for sleeping. Same with glitter and action graphics and bright colors and ornamental pockets. You could bring it enough out of sleepwear
5: that a kid would never want to sleep on it. So make it uncomfortable or make it a jacket or something like that.
7: It's decoration as a form of protection— defending kids from fire and also protecting the companies from liability. Sometimes behind the glitter and garishness is a legal subtext.
1: Articles of interest from 99% Invisible, created and presented by Avery Truffleman. Jonathan's big and cuddly and overweight. In medical terms, he's actually classed as obese. But his size isn't a problem for him. It just seems to be an issue for everyone else. Meets one of the winners at this week's Third Coast International Audio Festival.
2: Hi, this is my new podcast. It's called Meat, and in the next few weeks we...
0: Meet, as in meeting people? Who are you meeting?
2: No, uh, it's meat, like animal meat.
0: Like chicken meat.
2: Yeah. So, should I start it again? Can you hear my accent? The point is, when I say meat, do you think that people will understand meat like meeting people?
0: So, uh, you're saying, is meat pronounced like meat? Yeah, meat's pronounced like meat. Which meat do you mean? Do you mean M-E-E-T or M-E-A-T?
2: M-E-A-T. Can you tell I'm not a native English speaker? Oh, uh, so... how? E-at
0: practice
3: that meat 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 okay. Now you got
2: meat okay when you hear me talk can you tell where i'm from which country which region please tell me just one time the right way to say it
0: meat meat
2: because i can't my english sounds perfect inside my head uh, um i i I looked inside this... When I talk to people, when I have to make a speech somewhere abroad, in my head, my English always sounds like... Dr Guy's ambition was to rid the world of cancer. He was convinced that the secret of how to do this lay inside the human cell. Mm. But then I record myself and I listen back to the recordings and every time I feel depressed, because in reality, I sound like this. Ah, uh, scusi.
6: Babadaboopi. Bibadabobadabababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababababab
2: My mouth is trained to speak another language, Italian. My lower jawbone is used to opening and closing fast and hard to articulate all the consonants that give that special rhythm to words. The space between my palate and the surface of my tongue is tight so the air that pumps from my lungs is pushed out fast under a little pressure That's how I can speed out all those vowels at the end of Italian words There's the English that I hear in my head and the English that comes out of my mouth and in between there's just meat Muscles, nerves, cartilages, bones, freckles, marrows, moles, scars, wounds, blood. Whatever is going on in our heads, our thoughts, our dreams, our fears, it's flesh that gives a materiality to being alive.
3: You own your own meat. If you own nothing else in the world, you own the meat that's packing your bones,
2: That's what this podcast is all about. The cage of flesh that we call body, that keeps us alive and sometimes keeps us from living in the way we'd like. We are going to tiptoe over people's skins and visit their organs, flow it in their fluids, but most of all, we will spy on the lives they lead because of the bodies they have. We will take a look to others people bodies in upcoming shows, But, as we are going to get naked, it seems unfair to start in this first episode with mine. So, welcome, I'm Jonathan Zenti and this is Meet.
6: because it has a double ring right at the bottom curve and also it looks more square than round from
2: the side due to gravity. I made this recording a couple of years ago. I had just finished an interview with one of my closest friends and I left the recorder running as I usually do to catch some of those happy little sounds of family life. We had tea in the living room. I made everyone laugh with a story about my dad introducing himself naked to a girl I was dating. And then my friend asked me to come upstairs to check something on the internet. I left the recorder in the living room, still running. When I listen back, I hear my friend's mother and sister laughing about my naked father's story. Her mother says, Che simpatico, he is so funny. And then she whispers, You should die though, because it's too big for the staircase.
3: <laughs> and then they laugh.
2: <laughs> yes, I'm fat, and I know that I'm fat. I know because every day something or someone reminds me I'm fat Like when I walk around the subway in Rome always so crowded, so full of people and the squeezed man next to me looks at me and I know he's thinking we are all gonna die now or when I get on the train and I sit down next to someone and the person snorts, stands up and goes looking for another seat or like that evening a date took me to her friend's place for dinner and I heard the host whisper in his wife's ear Oh my god, we are run out of food for the other guests now! and they laughed or that crazy time I booked a room on Airbnb and the host made me do a test to see if I could fit into her fancy shower because she was worried I might break the glass walls or that afternoon I was chilling out in a park laying on a blanket with one of my friends and she asked if she could record me talking about the first time I ate a lot
6: Blap
2: blap blah. OK, you start over. It was my first trip in Sicily. I've landed very late in the evening, because the flight was in late. And I remember that I arrived at their home. There was a big bowl full of tomato sauce. And I was thinking, like, how am I supposed to eat it? If there is any bread or nothing? And I put the fork inside. And inside that tomato sauce bowl, there was 10 meters, sausages. Okay, that's the first time that I've ever eaten in my life. And I remember it like every taste in every angle of my tongue.
5: Sausages in the sauce.
2: Yeah. Or when my late grandmother introduced me to some relatives saying, this is my nephew, the fat one. Or when the tiny daughter of a friend shouted at me, Are you fatty because you eat too many biscuits? Want me to carry on? I can do this for hours. I was already overweight by the time I was about 17, and in 18 years since, I never really got why people are always reminding me that I'm fat, always pushing me to lose weight always congratulating me when they think I've lost a couple of pounds. Also, I don't really know where the line is that divides normal people from fat people. The turning point when you look at yourself and say, I'm fat. The World Health Organization suggests you take the BMI test. You can easily do it online. You enter your weight and height and it says, Your
3: BMI is 44.8 indicating your weight is in the obese category for adults of your height.
2: Obese, what a scary
3: word.
2: I'm sure by now you are picturing me as one of those slobs you see on the TV shows, larger than the couch they sit on, always falling over their own feet. The type who needs a car to transport his tummy when he goes shopping for another bag of junk food. But I'm not that kind of obese man, not at all. I'm just fat. I can fasten my seatbelt on an airplane, I can walk, I can stand up, I can sit down, I can touch my nose with my finger. How can I see my weight as a problem when it's never been a problem for me? Once I went for a complete checkup to see how these 18 years of obesity have affected my body. Blood, heart, liver and nothing. I'm perfect. My heart is strong and my blood is normal. Just a little like in HDL, the good cholesterol that prevents heart attacks. So, if the thing that's wrong isn't inside my body, it must be outside it, in the gap between my skin and other people's eyes. Because they are the ones who see me as fat,
1: not me. Jonathan Zenti, who's an independent radio producer based in Rome and some of episode one of Meat, and that's one of the winners at the Third Coast International Audio Festival that's going on in Chicago at the moment. Jonathan's got eight episodes on the go at the moment, and he'll be releasing them as soon as they're ready, next one out in a couple of weeks, and you can find a list of Jonathan's listening recommendations too on our webpage now uh, at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast (laughs) hour. Thanks for all the listening recommendations, folks. Poppy, Kushler and Nancy have all emailed recently with some great tips to pods at rnz.co.nz. Annie suggested a lovely Australian podcast called Dispatch to a Friend. and That'll be on the show in the next week or two. So next time you hear something good, do let me know. Also, a few weeks back, you might have heard me playing a BBC story all about coincidences. It features Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter. He's a statistics whiz from the University of Cambridge who collects stories all about coincidences and is really good at working out how likely they are to happen.
4: We get ones people remember, tell us about that happened 40 years ago. So these once-in-a-lifetime ones that happen really stick in the mind. People do remember them. Again, my favourite I heard, I don't think it's on our collection, was somebody who was on holiday in Italy and uh, suddenly they came across this large group of middle-aged men having this great party together at this uh, winery and uh, they were having a boisterous time and someone just asks, well, what is this? what is this group? And they said, um, oh, oh, this is uh, it's a really bizarre little group of people. You know, We were all born on I mean, January the 27th, 1953. And the man said, I was born on January the 27th, 1953. <laughs> and got welcomed into the party with open arms and things like mean, that. Those two wonderful for words. I'd say that's one in a thousand lifetime coincidences. So that's great.
6: So, David, while you've been telling me that
4: really interesting story about the birthdays, the January 27th, producer Kate has just been speaking in my ear, telling me that not only is her birthday January the 27th, but the engineer that she is working with in the studio right now recording this interview also has a birthday on January the 27th. What do you think about that? Oh, it's wonderful. I love it. I feel I'm being deliberately picked on by having two instances <laughs> happen to me and being forced upon me. That's wonderful. That's a really lovely probability match. And I can tell you the chances, that's a 1 in 135,000 chance that that would happen. Wow. So in the making of this programme, in the recording yep. of this interview, we've come upon yep. a very rare, a pretty rare coincidence. Yes, yeah, pretty rare. That's pretty good. I mean, that's the chance, same chance, really, as having three kids all born on the same day. Excellent to have a right. real coincidence in the making of the programme. I'm very impressed indeed.
1: Some of the BBC story, What Are The Odds?, featuring Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter from the University of Cambridge. Well, after listening to that, lots of you wrote in with memorable coincidences from your lives. I sent them all off to David, who kindly had a look through them. Although I should say he's a pretty tough audience and he isn't easily impressed. Just to pick out a few of the shorter ones you sent in. Simon said his father flattered in London back in the mid-1950s. After his dad remarried, he went back to the UK with his new wife to visit her sister in London. As Simon writes, familiar suburb, familiar street, familiar flat. Yep, same house as he'd been in 40 years earlier. David thought that one was great. Kate said she was going out with someone from Essex when she was living in London in the 1990s. She visited her boyfriend's dad, a stamp collection came out, and the New Zealand stamp in the collection was postmarked 21st of February 1967, which just happened to be Kate's birth date. Sounds pretty good to me, but David says given her boyfriend's age, his childhood stamp collection would be likely to have dates around her birthday. So he would only put the chances of this at around one in 2000. One in 2000 doesn't sound too shabby to me though, thanks Kate. And finally, Andrea met up with two New Zealanders who were brothers in Harare in Zimbabwe in the mid 1990s. A year later she met the very same brothers again this time at a New Year's Eve celebration in Chiang Mai in Thailand. David uh, wasn't all that wired by that one at all unfortunately. He says Kiwis must meet each other all over the world's adventure holiday places and thanks to you all for sending your coincidences in. Back in the early 2000s, a steroid scandal rocked world sport. Famous athletes, including the baseball player Barry Bonds and the track star and Olympics gold medalist Marion Jones, got caught taking performance-enhancing drugs. These drugs were supplied to them by Balco, a San Francisco business, offering its clients a smorgasbord of substances that wouldn't show up in testing. American Scandal tells the story of Balco, its boss Victor Conti, and how he and his clients were brought to justice. And it brings it all to life by using sound in a way that could be borrowed from the movies.
3: It's 10.30pm on a cool Monday night in May of 2003. car pulls up behind a strip mall a few miles from the San Francisco airport man in sweatpants and a hoodie roots through a dumpster. One thing that makes the job easier, he's so tall he doesn't have to climb inside. All that trash is within his reach. He tries to work quietly, but the bulging trash bags are awkward to handle. Ah, God damn it! The man going through the dumpster isn't homeless. He lives two miles away, but he does this every Monday night. Welcome to the exciting world of being an agent with the IRS Criminal Investigations Unit. Tonight's assignment, dumpster diving. For Special Agent Jeff Nowitzki, this has been his Monday night routine for over a year. Drive to the parking lot of the Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative, otherwise known as BALCO. Snatch the trash bags out of the dumpster, drive to the empty parking lot of a nearby office park, and sort through it all. He knows that BALCO's owner, Victor Conti, has been dealing performance-enhancing drugs, so of a lot of people, but he's not interested in bringing down some small-time dealer. If he can bring down Conti, He'll also bring down some of the biggest names in sports. But he needs hard evidence. So here he is on another Monday night going through the garbage. Nowitzki rips open the bags and starts sifting through them. Empty bag syringes, 100 count. Bill, electric, bill, phone. Tonight's expedition yields the usual things. And just like he's done every week, he meticulously catalogs it. Sometimes he wonders what the hell he's doing. He's got a family and kids waiting for him to come home. And here he is in a parking lot, alone, elbow deep in garbage, dreaming of bringing down Victor Conti and all the famous athletes he's supplying with steroids. It takes an hour for Nowitzki to go through tonight's haul. He keeps the items of interest, then stuffs the rest back into the trash bag and throws it into the nearest dumpster. He's almost done when, whoa, an order for a laboratory, blood and urine tests. Used to detect steroids. He's found them before. nowitzki has got a pile of these forms. But the one he's holding in his hand tonight is different. The name on it? Barry Bonds. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham and this is American Scandal. This is the second episode of our five-part series on a scandal that rocked the sports world to the core. In our last episode, a self-taught scientist named Victor Conti founded a supplement company called Balco, offering up specially designed programs to athletes trying to enhance their performance. And Barry Bonds has become the highest-paid player in baseball. He's filthy rich. He's got talent. He's got determination. But he hasn't got steroids. Not Barry Bonds. Not yet. This is Episode 2, Gold Medals and Bad Blood. It's August 1998, and Barry Bonds isn't happy. There are two names dominating baseball, and neither of them is Barry Bonds.
4: McGuire gets revenge today. Sammy Sosa with his first homer.
3: And you can forget! One of the greatest rivalries in the history of baseball is playing out without him. Roger Maris' record of 61 home runs in a season has stood for 36 years. Now, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire are within swinging distance of breaking it. Bonds is fed up, watching what he considers inferior players bask in the spotlight. He is convinced that McGuire is using steroids to help his performance, and he thinks McGuire's corn-fed, all-American looks earn him a pass that he, as a black man, would never be afforded. Even when Bonds hits a career milestone with 400 home runs and 400 bases stolen, it's barely news. The Marlins pitcher who threw the ball says, I had no idea. I guess it must have been a pretty big home run for him. And that about sums it up. As each week goes by, Bonds gets more and more angry. On September 8th, McGuire blows past Maris's record with home run number 62. Bonds isn't cheering. In October... Sports Illustrated makes Mark McGuire their cover story with the headline, What a season! Bonds isn't subscribing. In January of 1999, McGuire's 70th home run baseball sells at auction for $3 million, the most ever paid for a sports artifact. Bonds has had enough. Bonds doubles down on his workouts, but he still isn't getting the results he wants. He wants to be bigger, stronger, faster, but he's hit a wall. Then... He reconnects with a childhood friend from his Little League days. Greg Anderson is a trainer at World Gym in Burlingame, just down the road from Balco. World Gym is known as a place where serious bodybuilders train. It's also known as a place where you can buy steroids. And Greg Anderson is the man to see. Bonds already has a team of trainers, the best of the best. But Bonds needs a little something more, and Greg Anderson has it. Anderson is a highly regarded trainer. In fact, he markets himself as the weight guru. Yes, he supplies bonds with steroids. But an athlete doesn't just pop a pill and bulk up. Performance-enhancing drugs build muscle and speed recovery time. But the athlete still has to work out. So Anderson creates a customized routine for bonds. It's brutal. Extremely slow reps. Heavy weights. 15 sets. Several days a week. To a lesser athlete, it would be dangerous. Maybe even lethal. But Bonds is up to the challenge. He has a goal. He's going to prove he's a better player than McGuire, no matter what it takes. Even though they're only a few miles from each other, Victor Conti and Greg Anderson have never met. But they are both dealing performance-enhancing drugs. Anderson gives Bonds what Conti would consider old-school steroids. He starts with a steroid Winstrol, a favorite of bodybuilders for increasing strength. To build muscle mass and speed recovery, he gives him human growth hormone. There's a brisk black market for it in the Bay Area. It's given to people with AIDS to combat weight loss, but some patients are forced to sell it so they can pay their bills. One man's misery is another man's muscle. For Bonds, taking the drugs means he can work out even harder, and the results are shocking. When he shows up for spring training in 1999, his teammates can't believe the transformation. He's put on at least 15 pounds of solid muscle. They start calling him the Incredible Hulk, and make jokes about gamma radiation transforming him. What they don't do is ask any questions. When it comes to using performance-enhancing drugs, the ball club follows the same rules made famous by a movie that came out that same year. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. Bonds kicks ass, and that's what matters. Greg Anderson now has him on Nandrolone and human growth hormone. In the 2000 season, he hits 49 home runs, a career high. The only player ahead of him is Sammy Sosa, with 50. It's an astonishing performance for a 36-year-old. Most players at that age are sliding toward retirement. Bonds is ramping up to the best season of his career. The owner of the Giants is especially happy. Bonds is a huge draw, which fills the seats of the new and very expensive stadium. Screw McGuire. Now it's Bonds who is setting attendance records. Bonds is treated like a king. He gets his own private area in the locker room, and he's allowed to bring his trainers into the clubhouse, which is unusual. But the Giants' management does some checking and finds out that World Gym is a place to get steroids. And Anderson, Bonds' trainer, is rumored to be the guy to get them from. So what do they do about it? They follow the first rule of Fight Club. Home runs are being hit. Records are being broken. Money is pouring in. Who wants to mess with that? Not the owners, not the players, and not Barry Bonds. American
1: scandal from episode two called Gold Medals and Bad Blood, hosted by Lindsey Graham for Wandery. Sydney's Royal Botanic Garden is Australia's oldest scientific institution. If you've ever been there, you also know it's got amazing views across Sydney Harbour to the Opera House. Its podcast, Branch Out, shows off the science and the stories behind some of the most interesting plants in its collection. And with nature right there on its doorstep, it's great to hear so many of the interviews recorded out there looking at stuff – allowing scientists to get a little bit more animated than they might do stuck in the studio or in a lab. Trevor Wilson and New Zealander Matt Renner are botanical buddies who spend weeks at a time together on the road trying to discover new plants. Shame they don't share the same musical tastes and can only agree on listening to one song on the car stereo, which they do on repeat for hundreds and hundreds of Ks the song's City of New Orleans by Arlo Guthrie, just in case you're wondering. That's just one of the facts that emerges as they discuss a brand new plant they discovered in a very unlikely place.
8: Creek crossings, cliff ledges. Collecting in swamps and low-lying areas.
9: Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and that's Dr Trevor Wilson and Dr Matt Renner. Botanists from the Royal Botanic Gardens, Sydney, who brave the elements to collect and study plant material all over Australia.
6: How about the the razorback ridge that we're on collecting those bunya pines, where one metre to your left is a 100 metre drop and one metre to your right is a 100 metre drop and you're standing underneath a towering 20, 25 metre tall tree that's on the cusp of this thing. Hmm, if somebody pushes it over, the whole ledge will come off with you, I think.
9: Starting with early human efforts to identify edible, medicinal and poisonous plants, botany is one of the oldest branches of science, and Matt and Trevor continue to venture into the wilderness to discover what's out there. But Matt wasn't always interested in plants.
8: used to think that plants were the most boring things on Earth because they didn't do anything. Um, and they all looked the same anyway. But uh, I was given an orchid to look after by my mum when I was 14 and something popped in my brain because uh, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen.
9: What about it was crazy?
8: Uh, it, was, um, it was a stick with three leaves stuck on the top growing in a pot full of rocks. And uh, for me, in my ignorant appreciation of the world around me, I broke all the rules about what I thought plants should be.
9: Matt has come a long way from caring for his mother's orchid. For the last eighteen years, he's been studying a group of simple plants known as bryophytes. This group of plants is made up of liverworts, mosses, and hornworts, which started growing on land about 470 million years ago.
8: I was amazed that uh, you could take, um, you know, a piece of what's literally green scudge like this.
9: Matt's pointing to some liverworts, which are blanketing some rocks inside the fernery at the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney, and reflecting on how he first became interested in these ancient but seemingly uninteresting plants.
8: And I was just, I was, I was astounded that you could get this stuff to genus, uh, let alone species. I thought it was some sort of botanical dark art. It was almost like magic. And um, when I when I looked at them under a dissecting microscope, I yeah, I really just, uh, I just fell in love with them. Yeah. Like these, are, these, are, these are just intricate little beasts. They have all sorts of um, appendages and cilia on the underside. They're, 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 they're gorgeous organisms, but you don't see it until you look at them with a microscope. And when I did, uh, something inside my brain popped and I've been, uh, I've been hooked on them.
9: Every day people don't really stop to look at liverworts or think about them in the way Matt does. Honestly, they're very easy to overlook. And from where I'm standing inside the fernery, it really does just look like green scunge. I need Matt to paint a better picture.
8: In New Zealand, we have this thing called mossy forest, and I love it because most of the biomass and most of the diversity in mossy forest is actually liverworts. So, um, (laughs) why are you giggling? I I enjoy that. Oh, I love correcting people. Um, so oh. I'm like, really, it's not, it's not mossy forest, it's liverworty forest. So the tops of many Pacific islands covered in liverworty forests, uh, PNG, all across the Indonesian archipelago, uh, really high diversity um, of liverworts in those forests.
9: We actually have these tiny, humble plants to thank for causing such a major rise in the oxygen content of Earth's atmosphere, paving the way for our very existence. They also gave rise to the more complex plants like trees, flowers, grasses and vines, known as vascular plants, which is Trevor's domain, in particular, Plectranthus.
6: Plectranthus is this little herbaceous, succulent, almost uh, mint plant that grows all up and down Australia and across the tropics, all the way to Africa. And we don't really know much about it in Australia.
9: Despite studying very different plants, Trevor and Matt make an awesome team. In 2014, they went on a field trip to Jardine River National Park in far north Queensland, the very tip, to look for Plectranthus. In northern
6: Queensland, in the Cape York, where we, where we aimed to go, has a really high diversity of, of Plectranthus species, or so it's thought. So we decided to go around all the rocky outcrops, wherever we could get to, and see what was there. I thought, looking at a, looking at a map... Up at the Jardine River, I said, hey, Matt, this has got a bit of some rocks in the area. So I thought, oh, this is a great place for black tranthus. Did you find any? No. (laughs) (laughs) But but the story has a good point to it.
9: Yes, it does. So Matt's come along to a seasonally dry, monsoonal, low-lying area. Not a swirling, misty mountain in the wet tropics where bryophytes thrive. He's not prepared to find anything of interest to him. But something caught his eye.
8: Uh, colour was the first thing that caught my eye. Um, when you get to know a group of plants well, you become fairly attuned to just uh, certain shades of green, and you can spot the colour from, oh, you know, ten, twelve metres away. So, alongside this little permanent waterway, feeding out of a large, ba- a permanently wet basin. In a lens on the sandstone pl- plateau, was a series of waterfalls, and alongside these waterfalls was this, you know, bright, vibrant yellow-green colour. They're just in the uh, the vertical soil on the side of the stream banks, uh, getting splashed continuously by the the spray coming off the water. These small waterfalls. Yeah, uh, this this little plant was was uh, was unexpected. I I didn't expect to see. Uh, any species of Lepidoseaceae in this country.
9: Lepidoseaceae is the family of leafy liverworts Matt suspects this curious little plant belongs to.
8: When you think liverworts, you want to collect them, you go to wet mountains. You don't go to hot, periodically dry, um, uh, seasonal monsoon woodlands.
9: So it's out of place?
8: Uh, Very, yes. It was very out of place.
9: Did you shout? Did you go, hey, I got something? Or Uh, what did you do?
8: No, I looked at it and then I asked Trevor for his hand lens because not expecting to see anything interesting, I'd left mine in the car. So yeah, I borrowed Trevor's hand lens. I still couldn't work out what this thing was in the field.
9: With around 7,500 liverwort species, I'm wondering what Matt would be looking for if he had the right hand lens to tell these tiny plants apart in the field.
8: Some fairly fine uh, structural details associated with the origin of geotropic stolons that these plants produce to fix them to the substrate.
9: Okay, rewind. Geo-what now?
8: Geotropic stolons, they're just like pegs. So you put tent pegs into the grounds, these plants grow geotropic stolons to hold them onto their substrate. I like it. Trevor Wilson and Matt Renner on episode six of
1: Branch Out from the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney, presented by Vanessa Fuchs. And that's about it from me and the podcast hour for now. If you want to find out more of the stuff we've been playing, you've been listening to Articles of Interest, Meet American Scandal, and just then Branch Out. If you've found something great to listen to, then do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address at rnz podcast hour is the twitter handle and i'll share as many of your recommendations as i can on future shows in the meantime from me richard scott enjoy the rest of your weekend and happy listening i'll be back next week with some more top podcasts to keep your ears happy see you